I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. Uh, If you were in your 20s or 30s, around 2010 or so, you might remember everyone talking about this movie, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. It was based on these graphic novels by the Canadian cartoonist Brian O'Malley. They're about this guy named Scott Pilgrim, you know, early 20s Canadian, starting a band, falling headfirst in love, duking it out with his girlfriend's exes using sophisticated cartoon martial arts. Then the movie comes out starring Michael Sarah, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Chris Evans, Brie Larson, before they were household names. It wasn't just a film, it was a cultural moment. Because watching that film in Canada felt different. The story is set in Toronto, and the film showed Toronto as Toronto, not as a stand-in for another city. And the soundtrack, I mean, it had Canadian artists like Metric and Broken Social Scene, and fake Canadian bands like Sex bob The film goes from being this commercial box office failure to being beloved by millennials and Gen Xers and now, you know, Gen Z. If you look at TikTok, there's a lot of Scott Pilgrim stuff there. That's largely thanks to Edgar Wright, who is the director of films like Baby Driver, Last Night in Soho, Shaun of the Dead, and Hot Fuzz. And now Edgar is back in the Scott Pilgrim universe. 13 years after the feature film came out, Scott Pilgrim takes off as an anime series following all of the original characters. And it hits Netflix today. So what has to happen for a movie to go from box office failure to cult classic? Did anyone object to setting a big budget movie in Canada? And which Canadian musician was called in so that the band in the film looked like a real band? Here's my conversation with Edgar Wright. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. We were just talking about music and Toronto bands before we started the, the interview, you and I. Who's the band for Sex Bomb? Who was that band? That was Beck. Oh, Beck cool. Those songs. And in fact, that song that you just played always blows my mind because me and Nigel Godridge, who produced the soundtrack, had been talking about different bands. And we did have, you know, a bunch of um, Canadian artists in it, uh, Metric, Broken Social Scene, Pit Koala. Um, and uh, we were talking about different bands for Sex Bomb, and, and one of them fell through and Nigel just said, you should just ask Beck. He would do this brilliantly. And he did over the course of a weekend... I got a CD back in the days when people used to burn CDRs. I got this CD of like 24 tracks that he'd recorded over the weekend. And that one that you just played, I mean, he never redid it, basically. It was like a demo and him and his drummer just kind of improved that tune and never did a second take of it. And Nigel was the one who said, I don't know why you would want to re-record this. I mean, this is as good as Sex Bob-omb could possibly hope to be. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, whenever I hear that in, in the, the film, it's always wild to me thinking like, that is the only take of that song. It 
it's it's amazing to look back on this film. I didn't know this, and I was talking to, to Catherine, our producer, about this because I was um, I was young. I was in my twenty. I was a good age for this film when it came out, but I was in my twenties when this film came out. But all my friends were obsessed with it, and I didn't know. And this is a weird thing to say to you. I didn't know it didn't really work out. Like I didn't. I thought it was just this cult film that's always been this great cult film. I didn't know that when it that when it first came out, it didn't it didn't do as well. I think sort of at the time when that happened. When I've talked to other people who've been in the similar boat of having a film come out and it not doing as well as everybody hoped, my advice, having been through it, is if you're proud of the movie, don't kind of like give in to that narrative. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's it's a tough thing because obviously, as a filmmaker, you sort of have a res- and a producer of the movie as well. You have a responsibility to like it making its money back. But then on the flip side, as a film fan. We all know about so many films that are considered, I'm not saying Scott films are classic, but like so many films that are considered classics or cult classics were not hits in their day. And when you say to people that, oh, Big Lebowski wasn't really a big hit, The Thing, John Compton's The Thing wasn't really a hit, or Big Trouble in China wasn't really a Uh, hit. Miracle on 34th Street. Citizen Kane. Really? Citizen Kane? Well, I don't think it was as big as it, it was you know, is now. No, it, like, wow. I'm not, by the way, I am not putting Scott Pilgrim in the same sentence as Citizen Kane, <laughs> even though I, even though I just did. <laughs> well, uh, when did you start getting the, when did you start getting the notion? Is that something that, is there a phone call to you that says, hey man, this thing is, it's, it's starting to happen in a different way? I think what happened was, is that there were cinemas um, across the country that started sort of programming it like what's funny to me is that prints that were in circulation in summer 2010 are sort of still out there. <laughs> like they never left some cinemas and it was particularly like cinemas in, in Los Angeles at first. And I think some Toronto ones as well, but like the ones I remember, because we were all in Los Angeles at that time was like the, the new Beverly, the one that Quentin Tarantino sort of owns now and the new art, they started playing it as at midnight. And, and what would happen is that over the course of like, maybe the next year, whenever it would show at the New Beverly, it would sort of be an excuse for the whole cast and me to get back together. So sometimes there would be midnights of Scott Pilgrim and the entire cast would be there. I think there's a, somebody's got a photo of like all of us on stage, including mm. like Chris Evans and Brie Larson and Michael and Aubrey and Anna Kendrick and the whole gang. So that was something where, again, it was something where you just felt like... um you had to keep getting the word out. That wasn't going to happen in 72 hours. And I remember there was the head of marketing at Universal, Michael Moses, sent me this email on Monday morning after it came out. And it was the sort of the best email I've ever had from a studio where the email just said, just said three words. It just said, years, not days. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought that was... I was like the best, like, because usually, like, you don't, usually if something doesn't do well, you don't hear anything from anybody. <laughs> like, and to get that email from him and just say years, not days, I was like, I, I was like, I feel you, and I thank you for that. I appreciate it. I can only imagine there's some vindication now. I mean, now that we're here to talk about this new new series, that you know, people are reaching out to you, and, and my understanding is you got a call that said, like, is there anything more that we can do with Scott Pilgrim? There has to be some sort of vindication there. Well, I think the thing is, over the years, we had, you know, it, it continued to rumble on because there's that thing when it when it stops 
you realize it stops being like a a black sheep in the catalog. You know when it's something where it's like, you know by the amount of Blu-ray reissues or the soundtrack being reissued or the game being re-released or there being, you know, new steel books and all that kind of stuff and t-shirts and endless merch to sign off on. You think, okay, this is obviously not a red ink item for Universal <laughs> because <laughs> there's obviously like, it just keeps on going and there are keeping screenings. And I think also probably because the cast, like the people, there were some people in the film that were already famous. And then there was a point where like everybody in the film is super famous and would continue to keep blowing up. So it kept being that film that has everybody in it. Like, so if I think when you watch it now and you look at the enemy titles and you see the list of names, you're like, holy you know, I was going to swear. Then I did. I stopped myself. Ah, yes, um, that's all right. But you know, I mean, you, you can. You can. We'll, we'll I'm bleep not sure you. what your. I'm we'll not bleep, sure what your we'll Canadian. You, you know, I'm not sure what your Canadian regulations are. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I think it was something where, over the years, we and we had continued to all stay in touch. And Jared Leboff, who's one of the producers, who was the one who brought me the book in the first place in 2004. He, yeah, he did call me and he said, he said, is there people asking if there's anything more we can do with Scott Pilgrim. And I finished his sentence and said, that's not an expensive live action sequel. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, because people had asked me over the years, fans had asked me over the years, would you ever do anything else with it? And I, I said, I don't know whether I would, but like, I think you could do something in anime because Brian's books was so, which he wrote and drew, you know, so beautifully illustrated and and also their their manga books you know obviously he's you know kind of canadian but he did it in the style of japanese manga books and it's like well wouldn't that be something and so then what happened is that um we spoke to brian about it and and he was interested in it but what was interesting to me is he he didn't i thought maybe he would just want to adapt the books because there were six books yeah and the film sort of covers them in a different way than the books but he wasn't really interested in just revisiting the original material. And then he went off and had a think and with his um, friend, the writer, uh, Ben David Grubinski, came up with what the show is. And so then he sort of, they presented that to me and Jared and Adam, one of the other producers. And I was like, well, this is interesting and ambitious and like, let's go for it. Ramona, I don't see how any of this is your responsibility. You went on one date. How good could it have been? Honestly, Great. Your date with Scott Pilgrim? Yikes. So what's your next move, Columbo? Well, you know everyone, right? I thought you could give me a quick rundown of the major characters in Scott's life. More like major suspects. So it's it taken five years to get here, but as um, I don't know if you've seen any of the show, yeah. but you can see that it's it's a lot of work. Yeah. You know, so so it's amazing to sort of to sort of sit here in 2023 and see this kind of finished piece based on like Brian's wild idea of how to continue it. Um, you, earlier, um, when I was introducing you, I said that, you know, one of the great things about the film, even watching it now, is that it's it's so very Toronto. And I made a joke that I said, like, it's Toronto for Toronto's sake and not like cheap Philadelphia. You have no idea how many times I walk outside of the CBC here on Front Street and I see like three New York cabs and I just know that's someone shooting New York down the road from me in Toronto. Was there any pressure to not do that? Was there any pressure to not be Toronto? Well, funny enough, nobody ever said... And I'm surprised at this in a way, because you would have think it would be one of the things that the studio would say. 
I don't think anybody ever said, does it have to be in Canada? Why can't it be in the States? Nobody said that, but there was a point in the in the pre-production where one of the other producers, Mark Platt, asked, is there a world where you would consider shooting in New York and making it look like Toronto? And I was like, no, no. <laughs> I said, that just sounds insane. No. So that did happen at one point. <laughs> and there's a bit, there's a little, there's, there's lots of... Um, in jokes in the movie, there's one bit where when they're making the Lucas Lee movie up at Casaloma, you see the New York skyline on, um, you know, on a backdrop. And when he punt, he kicks like Michael Sarah through the backdrop behind the Empire State Building is the um, is the uh, CN Tower. Yeah. <laughs> like, so you see it just really briefly. Mr. Lee. needed back on set. First time I came to Toronto was in 2004 when I was doing press for Shaun of the Dead. Prior to that, my experience of Toronto on screen was, was either in films, the, the, mostly the films of David Cronenberg, where he uses Toronto like um, to great effect, usually making it look um, quite ominous and scary <laughs> and wintry. Yeah. You never get you never get the sunny no. sunny Toronto. No, you never get the summer beach Toronto in David Cronenberg's no. film. No, it's definitely the wintry institutes, <laughs> um, like the Brood or something like that, or Shivers. Um, but the other one that I always like found funny that when I started to realize that like um, Canada would be doubled in for America was in the Police Academy movies, where the Police Academy movies, you'd be watching them thinking like, what city is this? <laughs> and then you figure out, oh, this is Toronto. Like, there's also, and I was trying to remember the name of this the other day, yeah. and one of your listeners will know exactly what I'm talking about. There is an alley in Toronto, and we use it in Scott Pilgrim. Uh, we use this sort of part of the plates when, when Todd Ingram throws... Um, Scott Pilgrim out of Lee's Palace into a back alley. But there's that alley that's in every single action film <laughs> ever shot in Toronto. I think it's in nearly every Chuck Norris and Steven Seagal film that was ever shot. And there's this particular alley that once you've seen it, you can't like forget it. And it's around the back of like a nightclub. And I was trying to remember the name of it the other day. Is it the graffiti alley on, on yes. Queen? Uh, on on Spadina? So. Off Spadina? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So. It's like a, a real home for like art, street art and stuff like that. So it's like all this graffiti all over the walls. I think so. It's in the opening of Out for Justice. <laughs> Listen, if you're listening, if you're if you're listening to this and you're as much of a nerd as Edgar Wright is, drop drop us a line, Q at cbc.ca. And What's we, the name of that alley? <laughs> what is the name? What is the name of that alley? Give me a, did, did, any good. Do you, do you remember any good stories about your time shooting this film in, in Toronto? Something that stayed with you? I think the thing that really stayed with me about it was that it felt very um, magical in that we were shooting in the locations that were in the books. So Brian had drawn like. Toronto locations. I'm I'm really trying really hard to drop that second T, but which is the mistake that people not from Canada. Oh, listen, I'm I'm from I'm from Newfoundland, and I say Toronto, and I get roasted for it all the time. So you're in you're in good company. I, I'm, I'm really trying. I'm dropping that second T yeah, for right. you. You're like Drake. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think the thing is, is that the cast were already young, and it was this weird thing where we were hanging out outside of the movie in the same locations that are in the movie. And so that started to be very like, um, not strange, but so magical where it's like, you know, like around Bloor and Bathurst, like Sonic Boom, 
and like the Blore, which is now called something else now, is it Hot Docs? Or yeah, something? the Hot Docs and, cinema, yeah. And, uh, you know, and like Lee's Palace and all of those places and all of the places like the communist's daughter and stuff. Like it was just that funny thing where the, 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 the film and the um, locations sort of, sorry, the film locations and where we were hanging out in reality started to blur together. And so it was a, it was a, it was really, it was a really sort of beautiful thing. And, and also because a lot of the Toronto bands were involved in the film, like metric and broken social scene. And uh, Chris Murphy from Sloan was the onset, like musical, like uh, technician director, like helping the actors like, with their Like he had to make sure the actors looked authentic with the guitars and basses in their hands. Well, one of my things I'll never forget is that, so some of the actors played instruments before, like Michael Sarah plays guitar really well. Um, Mark Webber and Alison Pill had to learn their instruments. And um, Chris Murphy was dressed. He was also, sometimes he would be like a hand double or a foot double for Mark Webber as Stephen Stills. And so so Chris Murphy from Slay was dressed in the same costume as Mark Webber. And I remember like when we're shooting the opening scene of the song, I just remember Chris Murphy standing by the camera going like, C, D. You know, doing basically like so, like Mark could just copy what he was doing. So it was like all of that side of it, like literally having a member of Sloan on the crew, like helping the cast. And then, you know, when we were shooting at Lee's Palace, uh, this we we built a set of the interior, and so both like members of metric and broken social scene came down and were sort of like dumbfounded that there was this replica of these palettes on a soundstage. So all of that stuff was just made it very like the whole thing sort of felt like it, a weird Russian dolls kind yeah. of like thing of just, we were living in the film, you know? bit of Black Sheep there by the Canadian band Metric, a song that was used as the music for a fictional band called The Clash at Demon Head in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Edgar Wright wrote and directed that 2010 film and is the executive producer of the new Netflix Scott Pilgrim revival, Scott Pilgrim Takes Off, both based on the comic books of the Canadian Brian O'Malley. You might have heard Edgar already drop some names from the original cast, who, by the way, all returned for this new anime version. Anna Kendrick, Brie Larson, Chris Evans, Alison Pill, Aubrey Plaza, Karen Culkin, all pretty much at the beginning of their careers. I asked Edgar if he had a sense of the cast he was building at the time. You know, we just saw, like, everybody that was, you know, new and up and coming. And some of those people, like Aubrey Plaza, I met her in New York and she did an audition and she was great. And then we flew her to L.A. to do a second audition. And when she flew to L.A., she booked Scott Pilgrim, uh, her first film, and in the same week also booked Parks and Recreation and oh, Funny wow, People. Wow. <laughs> and it was like, so Aubrey like, went from like no no like roles in film and TV to three in the same week. And I remember like Brie Larson's audition when she was 19 years old when we shot the movie. And I remember her audition vividly because it was like exactly what she does in the film. And it was so strong a take and so funny and sort of, you know, really distinctive. It is one of those things when somebody leaves the room and you're like, she is in the movie. She's amazing. Oh my God. (laughs) 
Hey. Hey, Scott. Envy? Been a while. Yeah. A year, I think? Approximately. How are you? I'm not doing so good right now. Oh, that's too bad. I, I remember all of those, everybody's auditions. And, you know, people that were sort of more already established, like Michael obviously had already done Arrested Development mm-hmm. and Juno and Superbad and Chris Evans had been in a bunch of movies, but I think hadn't, you know, like I really wanted to tap into, like, he has, he's so funny and he's so funny in, like, um, Scott Pilgrim sending himself up and I knew he had that in him and that was just fun to do. Hey, I'm talking to you, Scott Pilgrim. He's famous and he talked to me. The only thing keeping me and her apart is the two minutes it's going to take to kick your ass. Can I have your, can I have your autograph, please? I mean, uh, Judd Apatow said this thing to me one time that, you know, I was asking him a little bit about Freaks and Geeks, and he said that from then on, whenever he would watch a movie with, you know, Seth Rogen in it or Busy Phillips in it, he would just get so proud just to see them, see them, their their, their careers kind of continuing. Did you ever feel that? When did, you ever, did you ever watch Succession or The White Lotus and go like, geez, there they are, I remember them? Oh, no, totally. I mean, um, I think also with Kieran as well, it's like Kieran is one of those people who, like, is, you know, kind of... Um, you know, does what he loves. He's not somebody who kind of like works a lot. So I think with Kieran, even before he did Scott Pilgrim, it's like I'd seen him in Igby Goes Down. Yeah. And it's like, this guy's amazing. Like, and he he didn't work as much as maybe he, um, you know, like could just because he was quite picky. And so, you know, like he nearly steals the show in Scott Pilgrim. Hey buddy, look, if she really is the girl of your dreams, then you have to let her know. You have to overcome any and all obstacles that lie in your path. You can do it. Be with her. It's your destiny. Plus, I need you to move out. What? Yeah, I'm kind of banking on her calling you, but I don't have to evict you and you feel all guilty and shit. So when Succession came along and he's, you know, he really blows up, I was just like, oh, finally. <laughs> like, it's like, because it's like, we all know he's a superstar and it's just waiting to find the vehicle that where Kieran can just kind of like, explode and be brilliant so i mean i'm proud but i'm also not surprised i mean somebody like aubrey is another person who i think has continued to kind of you know do really diverse work and in drama as well as comedy and she always i mean she was amazing in emily criminal a couple of years ago as well as well as like white lotus so yeah i do follow everybody you know and and we all we all keep in touch, you know, like, so it's like, it's just a sort of a family that's kept on rumbling, you know? More of my conversation with Edgar Wright after this, but did you know that Scott Pilgrim was inspired by a song called Scott Pilgrim by the Halifax band Plumtree? Here's that song. That's Plumtree with a song called Scott Pilgrim, the song that helped inspire the original graphic novel by Brian O'Malley, which in turn inspired the film, which now inspired this new Netflix version of Scott Pilgrim. More with Edgar Wright, including his advice for aspiring filmmakers, coming up on Q. Q. 
One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, Here, There and Everywhere. Listen to Season 2 of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. And you're in the middle of my conversation with the British filmmaker Edgar Wright. We've been talking about his 2010 film, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, because the new anime revival series, uh, Scott Pilgrim Takes Off, comes out on Netflix today. Edgar Wright has a real rabid fan base around his movies, uh, like Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and Baby Driver and, and Last Night in Soho. We were working on this theory that maybe the reason film fans love Edgar Wright's movies is because he is the ultimate film fan. Like, I've had young filmmakers sit down at this table here and tell me that Edgar Wright is the biggest inspiration on their work. So who was that for Edgar Wright when he was just starting out? I asked him. It's always about your formative years, because obviously when, you know, I literally the first film I saw at the cinema when I was three or four was Star Wars. And so obviously in that early stage when my mum and dad would take me and my brother to mostly genre films. So at that point, it was like Spielberg and Lucas and, um, you know, so any like sci-fi fantasy, anything like that. But then I guess when I was a teenager, I think the people that I gravitated towards, that I just sort of started to understand that they were, if not auteurs, but they had a particular idiosyncrasies about their work. And the three that I can think of that around that time would be like Joe Dante, John Carpenter and John Landis, like where I'd really just kind of like really want to see all of their films and was kind of fascinated about the trademarks that they had in them. And then I guess a bit later, other like real mind blowers for me as I in my later teens, when I'm thinking about wanting to be a director would be the Coen brothers or Sam Raimi. And then and then later again, when I really want to make a low-budget movie, it's like people like Quentin Tantino and Peter Jackson and Robert Rodriguez, all the sort of people who are outside Hollywood, like making movies or or making, you know, sort of like breaking into it in some unconventional way. So I think like and, and you know, obviously like classic filmmakers as well, like Sergio Leone and Hitchcock and uh you know, Stanley Kubrick, all the sort of classics. But I think in terms of the people that I would sort of like gravitate towards, there were these kind of filmmakers who had trademarks. I, I really like that. You, you, what, what did you like about it? Because you're, you're, you're a filmmaker who has trademarks. What did, you like, what did you like about the idea of a filmmaker having trademarks? I think you just, um, it was, I mean, you know, like John Carpenter, it's like the way that he shoots in kind of like scope or his scores or even just the font that he uses yeah. in all of his films or like, you know, like Joe Dante would always have Dick Miller, the actor in all of his films. Um, or like John Landis would always have like a look to the camera. Somebody would always look to a cat to the camera in a, in a John Landis film or, you know, his use of pop music, you know, American wealth in London, I think is like one of the like films with like a pop music soundtrack that really like, made me sit up straight and think, okay, that's amazing. Obviously, everybody does it now, but back then it was like really startling, you know? Yeah. Did, you, did you know when you started making films what you wanted your trademarks to be? 
not really. I guess that they, I guess in a way, part of it was about directing comedy in an energetic way. And because most TV comedy at the time, and like not so much now, like, but at the time, like the, the conventional wisdom was to shoot comedy pretty straight shoot comedy pretty straight and and let the performers do the work and just kind of sit back and just record that. And that would be with a lot of classic comedies or TV comedy, the way that it would go. And, and then you would get something like Raising Arizona, where it's like, it's like super like adrenalized or even like Martin Scorsese's like After Hours, like where again, it's like, it's a comedy, but the way it's directed is like really energetic. So I think that was a big inspiration to me that I wanted to sort of do comedy films that were were as um you know kind of cared as much about the visuals as they did about the performances when you got a chance to meet some of these filmmakers who were formative to you i know you've interviewed scorsese i know you you spent time with with tarantino i i read that i had i had breakfast with joe dante the other day holy moly <laughs> and del toro didn't Guillermo del toro give you some like when you when you've spoken to some of these filmmakers who were uh, formative for you or just meaningful to you What's the best piece of advice one of them has given you? I think, um, you know, I mean, usually the people, I, I mean, it's funny. I, I feel like I've been really lucky to meet nearly all of my directorial heroes. Um, and I think the only one, somebody asked me this the other day, said, who's the one person you haven't met? And I said, I've never met Brian De Palma. Like, he's the one person I've never met, never been in the same room as him. But I've been lucky enough to meet a lot of my heroes. Weirdly enough, even Scott Pilgrim the start and the end of the shoot, I think I was there from like October until the following summer, including pre-production. And weirdly, my time in Toronto was bookended by having lunch with David Cronenberg. <laughs> it was like this kind of weird, like sort of like, um, you know, lucky charm of like, I, I, I had lunch with him at the start of it. And I had lunch with him literally a couple of days before I left. Um, but um, in terms of advice, I mean, um, I don't know. I remember like, I usually they're more like not to do with films necessarily. Like, um, I think a lot of people, the advice is what I would say to other people is about, you know, like stay intact and be yourself and don't kind of like conform because obviously going to Hollywood and making Hollywood films is something where, you know, like the idea of like selling out is also just about not being yourself anymore. Um, and I think, you know, I've had periods where people have given me advice to sort of say, you know, like, um, you know, like anybody could make this movie, only you can make the next Edgar Wright movie. And 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 I would give the same advice to young filmmakers when they would say, what advice would you give to young filmmakers? I would say, do what you want to do. Don't do what you think you ought to do. Because like a film that's sincere in any way, even if it doesn't have to be a personal film, it could be a horror film, but like make it with sincerity. Like you actually want to make this film. This is the kind of film you enjoy. Not just that you're making a film because that's the kind of thing that would do well. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's, I, see, that's, I see what you mean. Well, that's meaningful to me that last night, I think I saw you on stage being interviewed by Emma Seligman, the Toronto oh, filmmaker yeah. who, who who made Bottoms. But that he, was sounds, 30, he was 13 when we were shooting Scott Pilgrim. I mean, that, that seems like someone who's making great auteur films right now, bizarre, weird, awesome films. I, I can see that being the kind of advice that you would give someone like her. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't need my advice because she's already <laughs> doing it. But um, but it was that was great doing that Q&A because she and how it came about is because 
in the press for bottoms she had mentioned scott pilgrim like many 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 times so we kind of like um got in touch and then when she was in london we ended up doing a q a together which was fantastic especially as she was a you know a, a, a torontonian well a uh... Toron- I, I I felt like I pronounced the second T too hard there. I want to apologize to your listeners. Oh, what are you going to say, Toronto Torontonian? Torontonian? Yeah, it got to be Torontonian. Uh, Edgar, always a pleasure whenever you come on, and um, it was great to watch the show. I mean, I live I live in the annex, and it was uh, lovely to see uh, Honest Ed's, which is now shut down, which is now been, you know torn down. I, Emma told me that the Pizza Pizza on Bloor and Bathurst is also gone, which is is a, a, a stake in the heart. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I've been a long time since I've been to that Pizza Pizza, but I walk outside to the set of Scott Pilgrim every day and it's a, it's a joy for me. Uh, uh, thanks so thank much you. for making the time, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was fun. Edgar Wright was my guest. His new project, Scott Pilgrim Takes Off, is out now on Netflix. That's it for the show um, today. Thanks so much to Edgar Ray for coming on and, and reminiscing um, a little bit. I think that Pizza Pizza is still open. I didn't want to correct him. I live near there, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I went to that Pizza Pizza like two weeks ago. I'm just saying, if Pizza Pizza reaches out, I, sh- I probably should have corrected him. Also, can I ha- can I have some pizza? Um, the other episode we put up today is uh, Saroja Coelho's conversation with the Canadian all-comic Bobby Summers, who is the star and creator of this new show called I Hate People, People Hate Me. And he'll be here to tell you why he takes the word weird as a compliment. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.